Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are going to um, be getting the instructions this morning for the pre for the garments of the high priest, um, and then we're going to look at a little bit about um, what the tradition did with that. Because if you think about how long ago the dress of the high priest stopped being relevant to the ritual lives of our people, most for most of our history, these garments were irrelevant. Right? The temple was destroyed in seventy. Right? So from 70 on, we've not been able to, to have a, a, a relationship to these rituals and these garments as in actuality. So we've had a very virtual relationship with these garments. So I'm going to show you a little bit about um, the way our tradition has continued to have a virtual relationship with things like the details of the Mishkan and have continued to understand them um, as spiritually instructive, even though it's not literal anymore. So uh, we're going to spend some time with the Sfat Emet this morning, uh, after we read a little bit from Torah about the actual garments that they were to wear. So if you will look at uh, 28, which is, everyone have the page? Well, you want 28? In the green, what is it, Ruben? Well, uh, 475 is the beginning. Starting at the we are starting at the beginning. 2820. 2720. Oh, sorry. 2720. Bird is correct. So that's 475. You shall further instruct the Israelites to bring you clear oil of beaten olives for lighting, for kindling lamps regularly. Aaron and his sons shall set them up in the tent of meeting, outside the curtain which is over the Ark of the Pact, to burn from evening to morning before Adonai. It shall be a due from the Israelites at all times throughout the age. Okay, so we can stop there for a second. What is this talking about? What, the curtain or... The, the Ner Tamin, the, the, the eternal light is how we tend to translate this, yes? What does Tamid mean? Continually. Sarah, always. A better translation based on the biblical context of Tamid is regularly. Why do I make that distinction? you have to work to keep it going. So regularly means it's something you have to keep doing, yeah. right? So clearly they had to keep refilling and trimming the wick, right, to make it continue to burn. The other thing is that um, there are those who believe that this is our understanding of the eternal flame is a little bit misleading or a little bit wrong. <laughs> that um, it's not that it was, it's not that it was continuously burning. It's that it burned continually. Yes? That you, we even have the words here, from morning until evening. Yes? So that from morning till evening, continually. Evening, morning. 
So from evening to morning, thank you, Pam, um, regularly, meaning that it went out in the morning, that it was only used at night, and that it went out in the morning, and then the next night they would light it, tamid, regularly, for always. This is what they would do, yes? So it was every single day, every single evening, but it was not 24-7. Which, in some ways, makes a bit of sense. If you think about it being over the ark... Why do you need a light in the daytime? Why do you need a flame in the daytime over the ark? Right? It, you know, so, in some ways, it makes sense that it was continually... So, they would, every evening, light the Ner Tamid. Which, I love as an image. My, I was on the, at the Board of Rabbis meeting. I'm a vice president of the Board of Rabbis. And at our executive committee meeting, the president was, we get, of course, start every meeting with a Devar Torah. And of course, every Jew in the world is reading Tzavah this week. So the president gave this lovely drasha about the Ner Tamid. And he said that he, and he didn't name the person or I would name them also, because um, we always teach B'Shem Omro. We always teach in our tradition in the name of who we learned it from, or else it's considered stealing. Um, and so he learned uh, from from someone that he had been talking to that week that the Ner Tamid is really the Jewish first nightlight. (laughs) (laughs) That it is not, and then they went on to explicate, which I found very moving, that it's not a flashlight. A flashlight, or something like that, a torch, is used for guida, is used for like seeing where you're going when it's dark. The Ner Tamid was not that. Right? It was not used for guidance. It was used as comfort. That in the dark, why do we have night lights? It's not so our children can see to go to the bathroom. Right? Often they still stub their toe and scream for you in the middle of the night. Um, why do kids want night lights? It's comforting. The dark is scary. We, don't, we know that the dark is frightening. And when it's pitch black, it's really frightening. So a nightlight is not there in order to light the way so that you don't trip and fall as much as it is there so that when it's dark, you remember that there's light or you experience a little bit of light. Um, a beautiful image of the Ner Tamid for me. Is there a relationship with the old fire by night and cloud by day? Yeah. I, I have to imagine so, right? That there's... Why fire by night? Um, possibly that is a flame of guidance, <laughs> all right? Um, but, but for sure, like this image of when it's dark, you need fire to, to either see where you're going and or as comfort. Um, Sarah? I always thought that it was a, an eternal, ongoing yeah. light and took it as a spiritual thing about Judaism. But this way, you have to be involved in taking care of it. So it, it's more meaningful that it has to be lit every evening and cared for in the morning, too. That's different responsibility. And as a conscious act every evening of affirming, mm-hmm. even as it grows dark, I, I trust in the light. <clears throat> I mean, it's a, lovely, it's a lovely ritual to imagine doing every night. Like, what if we had a bracha for turning on our children's nightlights every night? 
What if we had a kavanah, an intention, and a bracha for turning on their nightlight? Mm-hmm. Um, drawing one's consciousness to, you'll be safe while you sleep. There's that which keeps us safe. Um, is there a blessing for lighting mm-hmm. a candle every day? There is not, so because there was not brachot, there were not blessings over commandments in the time of the Mishkan. Um, and uh, that, that is a rabbinic Invention, the blessing and the blessing formula is a rabbinic invention. The blessing formula itself is actually debated still in the Talmud. <laughs> it still isn't set. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam is still not set. Which is why Kol Neshama, our prayer book, can have the formula Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Chei Haolamim. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God. Um, Life of all the worlds. Thank you. Life of all the worlds. Thank you. Chei ha'olamim, life of all the worlds. Or all time. Life? Chei. 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 So life of all the worlds. Right? Already we could spend a lot of time talking about what does that mean exactly. But that is the, the Kolonishama takes that blessing formula for the morning blessings. Instead of the traditional. Right? Because it acknowledges that in the time of the Talmud there were still, they were still playing with the blessing formula. Um, so that's why there's no brachot associated with any of the rituals that would have been in the Mishkan. Laura? Uh, for me, besides the nightlight image, I think it also can mean that this is, you look to where the light is. So when it's dark and the only light is coming from there, that's, I mean, it's always there. That's, you can always find it. It may not light your way anywhere else but there. Nice, nice. That when it's dark, where's the light emanating from? In our tradition, from <clears throat> the ark, wherein lies the words, the teachings about how we are to live in right relationship with that force that we call God. In our synagogue, the Ner Tamid is solar, which adds a whole other dimension to it because it is driven by the light of the sun, which in Jewish tradition comes from God as opposed to us generating the electricity that does it. So it's a different kind of connection. So God lights our near tamin. Evidently. And it is the light of the day mm-hmm. that lights our near tamin into the dark. Mm-hmm. Right? We carry the light of the sun into the darkness by having a solar near tamin. Where did the practice come from? That the synagogue should always have a light. Always. It's this. It's this. So... Obviously, I was going to say to you, Sarah, um, or whoever said that, it was th- that they like this idea of the 24-hour flame burning, that clearly that is where normative Judaism went, is that it's always not regular, right? So, and so there became, our minhag has become that there is always a light over the ark. It comes right from here, the Ner Tamin. Um, so we have revalued this, if it was regular at this time, and I'm not arguing that it was, I'm just saying it's likely, um, but if it, we don't know which one it was, but clearly for us after this, there is something meaningful, and we have revalued the Ner Tamid to be that light which is always over the ark, right? Did you know this one here was originally candles? Oh, that one. This one up here. Yes, this chandelier has been redone. It, um, it originally held candles, so it's been used that long. Um, that if you look once at, upon a time someone had to climb up there. If you look at these pictures on the wall, I forget, one of these pictures has a Ner Tamid that is identical to that, of old oh, yeah. synagogues. Yeah. 
We'll have a contest. Whoever can find it. <laughs> Presumably somebody tended that fire. Right? You had priests on duty all night. You, know, you had somebody engaged with taking care of that. Um, all right. Let's go to 28. Oh, wait. I want to say one more thing about the narrative. I mean, so we have this narrative. I mean, there's this lovely custom um, that when the Torah, when all the Sifrei Torah come out of the ark, you put a flame in the ark. So in Duluth, we would, when it was Kol Nidre, and we took the Sifrei Torah out, we put a flame in the ark. It's a very ancient minhag that God forbid the ark should ever be empty of Torah and uh, that we shouldn't think the light has gone because the Sifrei Torah aren't there. Um, but an interesting aside. All right, 28, 1. You shall bring forward your brother Aaron with his sons from among the Israelites to serve me as priests. Aaron, Nadav, and Avihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron. Make sacral vestments for your brother Aaron for dignity and adornment. Next you shall instruct all who are skillful, whom I have endowed with the gift of skill, to make Aaron's vestments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the vestments they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a fringe tunic, a headdress, and a sash. They shall make those sacral vestments for your brother Aaron and his sons for priestly service to me. They, therefore, shall receive the gold, the blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and the fine linen. Okay, thank you. So, you shall bring forward your brother Aaron. So, this is speaking to... Moshe. Moshe. So you will bring, you will bring close to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons, mitoch b'nei Israel, from amidst the people Israel, so that they may now become priests. So then we get the four sons of Aaron mentioned here, Nadav, Avihu, Elazar, and Itamar. Yes, we know what's going to be with Nadav and Avihu. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, and then Elazar will succeed his father. Um, it is Itamar who oversaw the building of the Mishkan. Um, make sacral vestments, right? So vigde kodesh, clothing that is kodesh. What did we say the word kodesh? Any word with that shoresh kodesh means what? Hold, so hold that very clearly in your mind. <clears throat> These are the garments of Set-asidedness, mm-hmm. right? Apartness. I'm gonna, I want to come back to that. So these are the garments of set-asidedness for Aaron, your brother, lechavod ultif aret, for kavod, so for honor, honor yeah, glory, significance. significance. I, oh, I like that for kavod. For, it's heavy. Love that. Latif aret. What is tif aret? Beauty. Splendor. So they are both about seriousness, significance of office, and about um, beauty, right? That those two go together. We still have this idea uh, within normative Judaism of chidor mitzvah, of making beautiful the mitzvah. You shouldn't just, if you make kiddush, you shouldn't do it from a Dixie cup. You should do it from a silver chalice. 
the idea of chidur mitzvah, right? The idea of beautifying the mitzvah. When you look at the the coverings of the Sifrei Torah or their, you know, breastplates and their crowns, they are beautiful. They are precious metals, right? It's supposed it's supposed to be beautiful. Our fulfillment of mitzvot and the things we use to help us do them are to be beautiful. Um, I have a question. In the ancient world at that time, it seems like we're dressing our priests in a, in a, uh, ro- as royalty as we dress a king. And I'm wondering in the ancient world, was this common to do for the priests that they got a special? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there would have been special, you know, sacral vestments for any so not priesthood. To us, yeah. Mm-hmm. These are not monks. These are not monks. Mm-hmm. They are to be seen. Right? They will be seen by the people. Um, so, I mean, because I, I think it's, you know, we've talked before about terrestrial human culture, as we say in cultural anthropology, right? THC. Um, THC, terrestrial human culture, has an instinct towards um, unique, ornate, or at least very different clothing for those who are either royalty, who are set aside in their own way. Um, or for sacred purposes, that there seems to be this human instinct towards dressing for that office differently. Um, but if you think about it, and I, and I had this conversation with the kids that I'm studying this Parsha with for their B'nai Mitzvah, we have that everywhere in our culture. Like, mm-hmm. you can identify a policeman right away, a policewoman. You can identify a doctor in general when they're on duty um, right away. Um, you know, we have this instinct towards dress as a means of expression of role. Um, and certainly, if you're talking about um, this mediating the sacred, it would have been critical. I mean, that would have been a place of focus for that, for that urge, for that common human instinct. Um, the colors, right, are also important. So some want to theorize that blue and red together make purple, masculine and feminine coming together, um, different you know, kinds of energies coming together, uh, the color of royalty, the color of magic, that's what our priests are wearing. Blue and purple were the colors in the ancient world of um, magic and of power and of, of, of royalty because they were so expensive to make. Born to the purple. Born to the purple. That's exactly right, Reuben. That's where it comes from. Purple was very expensive to make. To dye a whole garment in it would have been ridiculously, outrageously expensive. Don't many cardinals in the Catholic Church wear purple? This is one of those... You you think about the red through Mm -hmm. deep blue spectrum, and you can think of lots of (coughs) vestments that are in that. Hi, Julie. Or that are in that color family. All right. So, remember who it is that's being commanded to do what. We're coming back to that. Um, so, everyone to whom I have given the gift, Ruach Chochmah, <laughs> literally the spirit of wisdom, they shall make the, the clothing for Aharon, Likodsho, to set him aside. Right? To be, to me, a priest, a Kohen. This Chochmah, the, the skill here, this goes, does it not go beyond like they knew how to sew? <laughs> 
Yes. Is it chokhmah? Is what is 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 the wisdom that God used to make the universe in a sense? And so, so yeah. So it seems to be something about um, although we don't hear anything about God being gifted, mm-hmm. it, there seems to be that God gives something ruach of some kind to some people, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, like of God's wind, mm-hmm. um, which in a way predates creation, doesn't it? The ruach mm-hmm. The ruach of God hovered over the face of the waters. That's pre or right? That's pre let there be light. So this idea that the ruach is already there. Um, so this ruach seems to be imparted by God to certain human beings that make them, I would say, gifted with being artistic. Oh, so, you know, it's very appropriate that who raised her hand. El kol lev is just before it. Right, chokhmei lev, so this wisdom of the heart, right? Because this is where, this is where, as we've talked about, the, the seed of wisdom and understanding in Torah language is always the lev, it's the heart. So chokhmei lev, so they are... Um, wise of heart and what did we have what builds the mishkan what how are the materials of the mishkan brought from everyone who is gifts from their heart nadiv lev who is moved in their heart who of voluntary heart so you need that from the people from everybody presumably that's a wider swath of the population people who are nadiv lev and now we're getting people who are chokhme lev who are Wise of heart, I believe, when it comes to this work, right? So Bitzalel, you know, is thing. is gifted in another way, right, to do the the hands-on work of artistry in the Mishkan. This is about fabric, right? This is about the those who are gifted with with this wisdom. I have a question uh, that say it's it's redundant in that it's saying those who are wise of heart that I have made wise of heart, let them do this. It could have just said those that I have made wise of heart. Why the repetition? Of, uh, tell me again. Um, you will speak to all those who are, right, wise of heart. Those, right, asher. So now this is going to modify what we just said. Those, right, that I have made full with the spirit of wisdom. So you're saying it sound feels re- Department of Redundancy Department? Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, if we have wisdom, I, it comes from God. Presumably, no. Well, I, I think that this, the point is that it does come from God. Because one of the things we're cautioned against is thinking that all of our wisdom and everything is just something that we make. So I think Pam's a, question is why not just say that? From the beginning, everyone in whom I have placed mm-hmm. the ruach of chokhmah, why does it need to say chokhmah lev before that, right? So it's a good question. It's a good, careful reading. Um, excellent. Um, I don't know. I mean, I haven't read. Usually, you know me. I'm going to pull it out. Um, and I haven't read anything that says why. I think first had to <coughs> something there that just in case we forget that, you know, we're wise. It's not because of us. That, that could be... That Chokhmei Lev is one thing. 
If you Don't ask, forget, I'm the one who filled them mm-hmm. with the Ruach of Chokhmah. Yeah. If you ask a lot of creative people where it comes from. Where does so it ma- come from? So many of them will say, I don't know. <laughs> Julie, where does it come from? Andy <laughs> Bernstein. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> I would say God can be in creativity, but all creativity is not godly. And it's not asking for creativity, it's asking for wisdom of the heart. Yeah, the wisdom of the heart. Yeah. 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 This is the part of us that that consciousness, Mm -hmm. godly consciousness that we can have. So we could have a long, (laughs) hour-long debate over what Bert just said. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Um, right. So, <laughs> or not. <laughs> or not. But, so it seems, yes, that Torah understands there is a creativity that is inspired or given by God. So, my, where, where we could have a long discussion is so, is it the thwarting of the intention of what that creativity that's to be used? Maybe all creativity is from God. We are the ones who misdirect it towards how can we make the most efficient killing machine, right? I mean, it, that, it, that, that the talent is God-given. The intent for how it's used is on us. Um, I don't know, but it would be an interesting conversation. <laughs> uh, Rabbi, how are you reading the word the ruach? Ruach? Yeah. It's an interesting thing to, to figure out how to interpret. The spirit of wisdom? Would, would an aura be a, uh, a translation? Why not? Okay. Although aura tends, tends to go more visual towards light. Ruach tends well, to be to me, wind. To me, aura is yeah, a, is a breath. Ne- not necessarily light. It's, it's uh, an awareness. You know. yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Lovely. For somebody who is going to be, not all people who are um, wise would choose to devote it to something godly. Even though, you know, right? I mean, right. Some, some, some wise people find a wise way to wage war. Yeah. So, or, you know, find, find, you know, use their intellect or their thought. So I wonder, do we need to back up to the very beginning of verse 3, where it says, You shall speak to all of those who are wise of heart. Meaning, go get clear with them that this is what they shall do with their creativity. Right? It seems to be something about leadership being involved in harnessing and directing that that wisdom of the heart, that creativity, towards what it is that God is now going to suggest. Towards holiness. Towards holiness, correct. That that is a responsibility that Moshe has. Go speak to them. Go get them. Right? That leaders are charged with, now I'm just exploring with you, but perhaps it's saying that leaders are charged with going out there and finding the talented people and harnessing that energy, harnessing that talent, acquiring that talent, if you will, for holy purposes. So next time I ask one of y'all to volunteer for something, because I think you're good at it, you'll know it comes with authority. (laughs) I'm 
culture, the word wise has very positive connotations. And now when I'm thinking about the way you're talking about wise, it may or may not be positive depending depending on the will of the person whose wisdom is or the values this person has. Because the Nazis had you could you could in your interpretation say Hitler was wise because he very creatively destroyed the Jews in, in, in Europe. So I think of the so, mad scientist. I think of the creation of the atom bomb. So, I, I think wisdom is different than intellect. And so if we're talking about wisdom of the heart, that does have a connotation of... Of positive. Yeah. The, the wisdom is more than intelligence and more than genius it, and more maybe even than creativity that wisdom suggests... Um, a knowledge about what would be good purposes and what wouldn't. So it would be interesting to, and I'll see which one of you decides to take it on, um, to look at every appearance of the word chokhmah in the Torah and see, is it always used in a way that means the connotation is positive where it's used? Maybe chokhmah on the left is always good. Ah, is there a chokhmah that's not from the lake? That's why it's been reiterated. Not so, smart, but smart in the heart. Lovely, lovely. That it's not just smart, it's not just chacham, but it is the chacham that comes from the heart. Lovely. Yeah. In Hebrew... Didn't they say we need to have our gut feeling the heart? It is not always good either, because our, our instinct, to, uh, to be able to differentiate about our instinct, because even in, 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 the, in the Torah... When they suggest you should kill every woman, child, and animals, and all of that, that was what's the purpose there? Right. So I, I don't think that's chokhmah. That's what I'm saying. I, it would be interesting to survey the literature in the, the biblical literature and see is chokhmah used in that case? I bet not. It's obedience. God says do it. You don't question. You do it. Right. That for us is chokhmah ever something other than this idea of the wise. Heart, you know, meaning something that is by definition good. I don't know. The Kabbalists, for sure, 100% take this word and go absolutely wonderfully crazy with this word. Right? This is a, a divine attribute, Chokhmah. It is one of the ten Sfirot. It is one of the ten emanations of God. Um, so in the Sfirotic system, Chokhmah is way up there. It's Chokhmah, Bina, Da'at. If you take the first letter of each of those, what do you get? Chabad. <laughs> oh, really? Chochma Bina Da'at. That's where Chabad comes from. It is an acronym. Chabad is not a word. It is an acronym for the first three spherot of Chochma Bina Da'at. Although there's different spherotic systems, so some people will say it's not Chochma Bina Da'at, it's Chochma Bina Sofail. Don't worry about it. Um, that was a Chocham who thought that up. It was a Chocham who thought that up. All right. Uh, Nicole. Yes. Mm-hmm. Meaning, sort of, because I remember like sleepaway camp, mm-hmm. and you know when they wanted more spirit, like mm-hmm. clapping and more, you know craziness among the kids. They said, "Let me hear your ruach." 
So I think spirit is actually a very good English, because you know often I pick on English translations of words. I think it's actually a very good translation of ruach, because you can use spirit, show us your spirit, team spirit, and you can say the spirit of God, and we have no trouble switching, or evil spirits, or like we have, or other kinds of spirits. Um, we have no trouble moving between all of those nuances at all with the English word spirit. And I think ruach functions very much the same way. And and God blew the spirit, you know, of God into the human being is ruach as well in Genesis. So I I think it's a really good interpretation actually. Because it works in Hebrew the same way. You know, we say, show us your ruach. And in English, we would say, show, show us your team spirit. Um, okay, did not expect to be there <laughs> quite that long. Um, so, and these are the clothes that you shall make, right, for the priests. What do we have? Choshen. We have the breastplate. Ve'ephod. And we get the aphod, which is a very interesting thing. What is that? Um, so the, I will read to you from, you know, this is the, my study Bible, the JPS study Bible. The biblical description of the priest's aphod includes four elements. The main body of the garment, two shoulder straps, and a richly decorated band. Left unclear is whether the aphod covered the lower and or upper parts of the body and whether the back and or the front. So we're not sure how large it was and whether it covered the back and the front or just the front. Was it more like an apron? We're not sure. Josephus himself, a priest in the last days of the second temple, likens the aphod to the upper part of a woman's tunic that had shoulder straps and sleeves and was fastened by brooches, a sort of waistcoat. Rashi compares the aphod to a pinafore worn by upper-class French women, because that's where he was. He was in <laughs> Provence, um, when they went horseback riding. That garment fully covers the upper part of the back. Rashbaum describes it as being wrapped around the body from the loins down. Now that we're clear. <laughs> uh, Rabbi, um, uh, in, in the green, we have a, a pretty, what, uh, detailed explanation of the ephod. Anybody's interested? Bivakasha? It's on page five, four, seven. What does seven. it say? Oh, it says a lot. <laughs> the English noun is simply a transliteration of the Hebrew term. A number of diverse sources... And then the judges, Samuel right. King, said, indicate that the ephod's appearance and function changed over time. It was a ritual garment, a divinatory device, or sometimes both, as seems to be the case here because of the ephod's attachment to the, quote, rest piece of decision, whatever that is. Urim Batumim. Mm -hmm. Say it again? The Urim Batumim. I knew you would know that. <laughs> Um, all right, so in any case, it is you know, a, a, a garment that is clearly identified with kihuna, with priesthood. Um, and when we get to the, the actual making of all of this, I will slide the ark over. There's a big TV screen behind there, and I will show you uh, images of the priestly garments. Yes? So I can show you a rendering. Um, when we, 
I need, I need to do something when we get to all of this all over again, when it's actually being done in Leviticus or wherever, Numbers, wherever it is. All right. So, um, so where were we? So the aphod, yes, we were at aphod. Umeil and the, the coat, literally coat or robe. Uktonet and the ktonet, the tunic. Tishavet mitznefet. So the mitznefet, the uh, headdress, the avnet, and the sash. So these are the distinctive uh, garments that the priests are to wear. On the the um, on the mitznefet, what, what's that in English? The turban. Mm-hmm. On the turban of only the kohen gadol, right? Um, you have the words kodesh liyotevavhe. Right? Set aside for Yud Hey Vav Hey. The priest himself is set aside for the. It's the high priest. The high priest, thank you. The high priest only has this on his, on his mitznefet. Um, the high priest is set apart entirely for divine service. <coughs> Who is not mentioned by name? So far, and it goes on like this till the end of the Parsha. Moshe. Moshe. Moshe is not mentioned by name. There is lots of rabbinic writing about why is Moshe unnamed in this Parsha. Isn't uh, God referring to Moses when he says, you shall bring forward? So God says, you shall bring close to you. We have no mention of Moshe other than indirectly. What I found out here is that when Moses wanted God to forgive the people to the golden camp, he said something about keep my name out of something, and that's why he's not mentioning his name here. Um, so God wants to destroy the people and says, get out of my way. If you kill them, kill me. Blot out, essentially blot out my name um, as well. And so here's the fulfillment then of that. It's one place the rabbis go. Maybe his name is not used because there is a presumption that this role will proceed to other people and this is for all time rather than just for him. Who? Just for who? Moses. Moses. So Moses isn't... Oh, Aaron. Aaron. Ah. Sorry. Right, right. So it is for all time. It is Aaron and his sons who are all named. Right? So the question for the rabbis is, what what happens to Moshe? Like, he's just kind of gone in this parsha. I mean, we know he's there. But, like, for them it's significant that everyone else is named, Aaron, Elazar, Itamar, Nadav, Avihu, and there's no mention of Moshe, and that Davka, Moshe, is not going to be the high priest. Or, or part of the Or part of the priesthood Bichlal at all. <coughs> Why? Why is Moshe not the priest? 
Here we're going to have the most significant roles cultically among the people. Moshe has mitigated the relationship between God and the people all the way from Egypt to now. And he's basically informed from now on, it will be your brother and his sons and grandsons and great, 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 great grandsons who will now be the ones mitigating the relationship cultically between me and the people Israel. Moses is retired. That's <laughs> enough. He's done enough. Would that he were. He is not done yet. We have three more books to go where Moshe is quite engaged. But in, in this piece. In the cultic role, you're saying God has just retired Moshe from the cultic role. Why? God, um, isn't there something about um, no prophet should arrive to such a standing that they could be godlike? I feel like God is trying to limit Moses um, to be just who he is. Like if he, if he has everything, if he got them to the promised land and was a priest and walked through, he'd be, you know, like a god figure supposed uh-huh. to. Uh-huh. Very nice, Linda Rosen. Linda Rosen goes to a place where our commentators have gone, and that is that there should be, as we know from our American parlance, there should be a separation of powers. powers. It did not begin with the Constitution. It did not begin with the U.S. government. It began here. I mean... I'm not saying this is the first. For us, it goes back this far. The idea, exactly what Linda is saying, is that you, you need a checks and balance system. You need for the powers, the ones that are held up to be the most significant roles, the ones that then, out of those roles comes a certain amount of um, privilege and authority and what, that you need to separate those. Otherwise, you could get a really... Bad situation. A dictatorship. If you watch The Walking Dead, it's a rictatorship. Yes? Really? Nobody. Nobody in here? Really? I am disappointed. Now Moses, Moses here, Moses here is not the executive branch or the legislative branch. Isn't he? He's the judicial branch. Who? Moses. He's in charge of all the judges. But he's also the executive. Well, he's not the king. No, not exactly. Well, uh, but you know, it's interesting where Reuben, you're inter- it's interesting in Samuel where it says tzav, the word tzav as we get here to tzaveh, right? Tzav mm-hmm. is, is used about the king. Make, make for yourselves a king. That word tzav is used. And so one of the commentators, the Baal Haturim, um, I think it was, went there and said, that's exactly what it is. Moshe is functioning as the king. And, you, and the judge. You need to separate the judicial, right, from the cultic. That those need to be separate. And what is the place that we get why it cannot be Moshe? Because what is Aaron and those guys, his sons, going to be? They're going to be kadosh. They're going to be what? Separate. What's the problem with that for Moshe? Where, where do the commentators go with that? Moshe has to be with the people. Moshe will directly mitigate 
right, as the prophet, the divine force, right, with the people. He intercedes on the people's behalf. He is always with the people, defending the people. He is judging amongst the people. He must be immersed in the cares and concerns of the people. Aaron and his sons will be completely removed. Completely removed in that sense. Right? They will function in this cultic space. They will be doing their cultic duties. And, right, and Israelites cannot encroach. Remember? Death is what happens if a re- normal, regular Israelite encroaches on the sancta. They are not only separate, they are behind a nuclear barrier that if people touch it, they're gone. Like they're irradiated. So that, can you get more separate than that? That you are not only in a you know, different role in a different space, but if you touch that space to try to you know, in any way get close to it, you're zapped. You're dead. Kaput. That is a, that is a much different you know, function, a much different role, and that it couldn't be Moshe. So for some of the rabbis, it's not only not a punishment for Moshe, it's saying, God is saying, the people need you to be with them. I can't have you in the Mishkan. I can't have you be the high priest who the people will get zapped if they try to come near you. It has to be Dafka, the opposite. That you need to be among the people and therefore this is a reward to Moshe and they find the scriptural hint for that. Ve'ata, it is you, hakrev elecha, who will bring close to you Aaron and his sons. That Moshe remains the officiant when, when you crown a king. Who crowns the king? The priest. The priest, the priest. Why? Allegedly, or presumably, is ordained by God. The priest. So, so tell me, who's more? Who has more authority? The priest or the king in that scenario? <laughs> of course, because if you're the one bestowing the crown, it is by your authority that Amy Bernstein reigns as queen. Let's just say, <laughs> right? So, in this case, it is by Moshe's authority that Aaron becomes the high priest. And that, so someone argue, this is actually, in fact, mo- making Moshe even more authoritative, right? Because he's the one who's going to take Aaron and draw him close and, and essentially consecrate him and his sons to divine service. That has the ultimate authority resting with Moshe. If we're talking about human authority, I'm not talking, it all, of course, is God's authority, but, but it puts Moshe in the crowning position, the turbaning. Just loses something. With all this, you think Aaron's son would know better and you know, not put himself in a place where they were zapped. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is a conversation for another Torah portion um, because there are some who want to read that as a positive incident. Mm-hmm. Not, not for done. them, though. <laughs> Um, I think all the separation of powers is beautiful, but it wasn't actually what I was thinking about. Oh, sorry. Did I put words in your mouth? It's related, but what I was was actually thinking about was that I remember learning in Torah study earlier that Moses had to be limited in some way so that he didn't become Jesus. 
or Muhammad. Like, we don't pray to Moses. You know, we didn't pray to the high priest either. Right. There is no prophet that comes or is in any way equal to God in Judaism. Right? That, that's the way I think of it, is that's why Moses had to somehow be limited, because otherwise he could have reached this status that would have been God-like. So, so, anyway, so it is related to this idea of the separation of powers because of what he might have become to the people had, he, had there not been a priesthood separate and apart from him as priest, uh, uh, as prophet. Yeah, yes. too much power. Too much power, correct. Same, same. same sort of idea. I don't think acknowledges that there's roles for everyone. We need lots of players on the team to make everything happen. Yeah. And there's So, this idea of dressing the priests in these garments, if we think about, we we brought up Nazi Germany before, one of the ways that the Nazis used, and anybody uses, um, clothing as humiliation, right, is to, is to enforce nakedness, right, that one of the ways of dehumanizing someone the star, the cap. is to strip them of their clothing, right, so there's something deep in us that understands, and I'm not talking voluntary nakedness, I'm not talking bad, I'm not talking sin, that is so not Jewish, right, so I'm not saying naked is bad, I'm saying the enforced Having someone forced to be naked, we understand instinctively to be a way of dehumanizing and a way to really enforce someone's vulnerability against their will. Yes? So for the rabbis, if you go back to Eden, they mess up. Mm-hmm. What happens? They get fig leaves. <laughs> they realize that they are naked. They become aware that nakedness carries with it vulnerability. That now, this state of nakedness means something it didn't mean before. And what is God's response? Why are you dressed? <laughs> How do you know that you're him. naked? Have you done something I told you not to do? He clothed them. God gives them the gift of clothing. Clothing is seen as the divine response to this awareness of being vulnerable, right? And what comes with that. God says, now I get it, that first of all, you've done what I asked you not to do. Because of that, you now have an understanding of the deep vulnerability that nakedness carries with it. And so God gives them the gift of clothing. So, what? This is what consciousness came about. Mm. Of course, of course, of course, to have the world, to have society, to have culture, to have all the things that we have. We don't live in Eden, right? So the, the Torahs, you know, the people who wrote the Torah and told the stories are explaining the world that we live in, Dafka, not Eden. We don't live in Eden. And so the world that we live in is a result of consciousness, right? This idea of I now have an understanding I did not understand before about the difference of good and evil, right? That's a tree they eat from the wisdom of good from evil. So that somehow goes right to their state of vulnerability. Right? Um, 
Because why, why does it go naked from the, the knowledge of good and evil? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but, it, but I think there's something significant about the fact that when they come to this awareness, when they come to consciousness of the difference between good and evil, they are immediately aware of their own vulnerability in being naked. God's gift God's response is to give them the gift of clothing. I do, the, the rabbis go to a place which I think is, is important for us to think about. They go to this place of that's what ritual garments, that's what you know, garments can be for us, right? Is a gift, a divine gift that these, these priestly garments are a divine gift to Aharon and his sons, therefore to the people of Israel who will have them as their priests working on their behalf. That there is a way that we use ritual dress and ritual garments as an empowering gift about um, both protection, but also a way of, of keruv, of coming close to the divine. I think about putting on talit. You know, um, I don't know. So, so for the rabbis, they really saw this as... They tied that to Genesis and understood this as being a divine gift to the people and to the priests. Isn't that also a gift? God's gift to himself because he needed us to be conscious of him. Oh, now you're going somewhere else. So you're saying that God caused us to eat the fruit? You know, but, you know, if you're not conscious, then there's no... Then you're saying Eve did the right thing. Eve did what God wanted her to do. That is a conversation for next year when we come Isn't to... Isn't clothing is one of the three responsibilities? I'm sorry? Clothing, I believe, is one of the three responsibilities a husband has to his wife. True. <laughs> he okay. cannot withhold from her food, clothing, clothing or... Sex. Sexual enjoyment. Right? Or ointment. <laughs> Depending how you read that word. I have never heard it sexual ointment. No, not sexual ointment. <laughs> The word that, that we pleasure? use for pleasure can also mean ointment, I am told, by Rabbi Dorf. I didn't make that up. All right. So I would love to hear where the rabbis would go with that interpretation of things. Um, so if you look at the spot I met that I just handed out to you. Yes. Even though Moshe Rabbeinu was greater than Aharon, I'm on the second paragraph. Mm-hmm. In any case, the priesthood was given to Aharon. Because Aharon was separated from the people. As it is written, And Aaron was separated. But Moshe Rabbeinu, peace be upon him, Shehu Sar HaTorah, who was a prince of Torah, Tzarich Liot Davuk Bichlal Yisrael. That he had to be Davuk, glued to, <laughs> Davuk is glue. He had to be attached to Klal Yisrael, to the entire people of Israel. Belachain. And so, Lo Harish Moshe Rabbeinu Olava Shalom, Ktaro Livnav. And so it was not given over to Moshe, peace be upon him, um, that his uh, crown should be passed on to his sons, Rock, Morasha, Kehilat, Yaakov. But rather, an inheritance to the Kehilah of Yaakov. What, 
let me just finish this paragraph. The Elu Hayagam Moshe Rabbeinu Alaba Shalom Nivdel, because had it been that even Moshe, our teacher, peace be upon him, was separated, Lo Hayachas Vechalila Lanu Tkuma, there would not have been to us, God forbid, um, a place to to coma. There, there wouldn't be for us a place to be, a place to stand. What, what is this Fatimah saying? You lost me where the where where to read this where you were reading from. I'm reading on the piece of paper that I gave you. Huh. Mine is in English. Correct. Huh? Moses is responsible for the world going on. Moshe is responsible for the world going on. For the, for the I mean, so much bigger than. How? How does that happen? What is the Sfatimet saying? Aaron will pass his crown to his sons. But Moshe pass on this to the whole community. Moshe, Moshe's crown will pass to the entire community because, according to the Sfarimet, Moshe's crown is Torah. 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 Moshe's crown is Torah, and that crown he will pass to the entire community of Israel. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Really, really beautiful. And then a, mod- a model that anyone can have that. Lovely, yes, yes, that any one of us can inherit that crown. None of us will touch the crown of the priesthood, right? But any one of us from the people of Israel can wear the crown, can inherit the crown of Torah from Moshe. Any one of us. It's accessible to any one of us. And it must be. Right? That's why Moshe cannot be Nivdel. He cannot be separated. Ach zekoach Torah. This is, so if you go, Reuben, to the third paragraph of the Sfatimet. Zekoach Torah. This is the power of Torah. Right? Dichtivba. Yeah. In which it is written. Yes? More precious. Yikraki <laughs> mipninim. So from Proverbs, that Torah is called more precious than pearls. Right? So more precious than the one, meaning the priest here, who comes before me and into the inner places, meaning of the Mishkan. That, that Torah causes the entire world Mikayemet to be established. Yes? Ubaze Nihasa Kodesh Baruchu Lemoshe Ki Iev Sharlo Lehit Paresh Michlal Israel. And so this is how uh, the Kadosh Baruchu, the Holy Blessed One, um, essentially Nihas uh, comforted Moshe or consoles Moshe, saying, Iev Sharlo, it is not possible for him to be. To be uh, differentiated, separated from the people, and if you look at your third paragraph towards the end, because Moses gave his life for Israel, God repaid him by having his power remain with them forever. Nearly every Jew, thank you, Julie, has the light and spark of Moshe, our teacher. Nearly. <laughs> Nearly. <laughs> that is why Moses was not given the priesthood. Once again, the priest. He has to be 
differentiated and separate. And so said our sages of blessed memory, the crown of priesthood was merited by Aharon. Oh, I just lost my place in the Hebrew. Uh, so we'll just look at the English. Um, and David won the crown of royalty, right, of kingship. But the crown of Torah remains for every Jew. And that this is why Moshe is not mentioned in this parsha. This is why Moshe is not part of the kehuna of the priesthood, because that is not what we aspire to as Jews. We don't aspire to the priesthood. We don't aspire to being set aside and set apart for sacred service. We aspire to what Moshe has to give us. We aspire to the crown of Torah. Who wrote this? The Sfat Emet, translated by Rabbi <coughs> Arthur Green, whose words you will always find in the italics. Um, right? So that the idea here is, uh, as Rabbi Green says, that it's, it's not right or proper that people who have a lot of anything, learning, wisdom, you know, scholarship, should somehow see themselves as lofty and apart, right? That rather, it, it is something that is to be, that helps one draw near and close, that it's, it's intimate, it's relational, right? It is not something to be somehow set aside in some ivory tower, God forbid, right? That the Torah is about Klal Yisrael. It's about all of us as the people of Israel coming together and um, living our lives in the light of, of that holiness, of, the, of that Torah. And that, that is an intimate thing about closeness and um, immediacy and dafka, not about the removed and the awesome and the, the inaccessible. Uh, and that, you know, for me, I think this is one of the things I love most about our tradition is that, is that we are not only able, but we are called to this idea of God as accessible and intimate and imminent. And then understanding how to live lives of holiness is considered for us our inheritance. Not something apart or separate from us. That, that this is the crown that we inherit from Moshe and it is available uh, to each one of us. And if we don't inherit it, it is because we have not somehow reached uh, for it. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.